and welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. And I'm first this week, I think. So you're first last time. I didn't want to research anything. I'd been getting tension headaches all week. And I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna read through books. I watched a Cold Case Files episode. Ooh. (laughs) So I'm grateful they make them and then point out in the descriptions they're from Michigan. So I can just search it and not have to wonder. So... Um, this week, this is the case of Shannon Siders. It's from season one, episode seven, titled Circle of Friends from 2017. It's semi-close to where you were. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember this case because it came back in the spotlight around like 2014, 2015. So you may remember um, this once I get going. Yeah, I've definitely heard little bits and pieces on it here and there. So people from around that area, you probably already know all this, but this was newer-ish to me, maybe? On July 17th, 1989, 18-year-old Shannon Siders from Nuego went missing. For those who don't know, Nuego is a smaller city, 35 miles north of Grand Rapids, and at that time had a population of around 1,500 people. Shannon's father, Bob Siders, went to work in the evening for the night shift that started at midnight. When Bob came home the next morning, Shannon was not there. Bob made phone calls to friends and parents to try and find her and went around the neighborhood calling for her. With no luck finding her, Bob went to the local state police station to report her missing. Bob also printed missing person flyers and put them up around town and sent them to every police post in the state. What a good dad. <laughs> yeah. Especially at that time, 1989. No, It'd be so difficult to get the word out. Yeah. That would be nearly impossible or the way that we could do it now where we just send out something on social media and thousands of people will see it. There were a lot of supposed sightings around town. A tip came in. There was a girl named Shannon hiding out from her father at a drug house in a nearby town. Police went and found her, but unfortunately, it wasn't Shannon Siders. It was a different Shannon. (laughs) Which, smaller town, what are the chances of a a girl with the name Shannon going missing at the same time, hiding from her father? So, Right. Someone called the sheriff's department and told the girl, who was 15 years old, the receptionist at the department, which, astounding to me. Really, that they let a 15-year-old answer the phones, but all right. Uh, Right. So she answers, and the person says, I just killed Shannon Siders, and then hangs up. She said in the interview that he sounded excited about it. So not knowing what to do, she said she just started crying, which is totally acceptable reaction for a child who has just told something terrible. Right. Yeah, awful. So a detective talked to her, but nothing was able to come from it. And it was very close to the time frame when she went missing. On Labor Day weekend, 1989, two guys were walking in the forest when they found two different forms of ID. Both cards had Shannon's name on them. Troopers went out to the location to look around and found a pair of jeans. 
The area was known as the Hole in the Woods and was a popular party spot for teenagers. Upon hearing the news, Bob went and looked in the area, fearing the worst. In the interview, he said, I was looking for either a body or a grave. Which is super sad. I can't imagine as a parent just coming to terms with it that that's likely what you'll find. Three months, yeah. Three months after Shannon's disappearance on October 15th, 1989, in the Manistee National Forest, and around the same area Shannon's IDs were found, a hunter found Shannon's body. He went to a nearby state police post and reported it. Shannon had several injuries, and there was evidence to show she had been brutally beaten. Cause of death was identified as blunt force trauma to the head, and there was evidence to suggest Shannon had been raped, and there was evidence of mutilation. And the description of everything else was extremely graphic, which I'm going to skip over because it's just so awful. Um, just the state that they found her in and they were able to tell what happened to her and it was just, it was brutal and terrible. And then Bob talked about the difficulty of the funeral and he didn't want to see her body because it had been three months since she had passed and he didn't want to see her like that. And also he talked about the difficulty of choosing pallbearers, which I didn't think about until he talked about it in the interview and it, it wasn't because he didn't know anyone or because she didn't have anyone that would do it. But he felt like whoever killed her knew her. Would have been close. And he, right. did, he didn't want to take the risk that her killer would carry her casket. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's a terrible thought. Um, so instead, he had her female cousins be pallbearers for her casket. The original investigators asked the Michigan State Police Behavioral Analysis Team to build a profile to find the killer. The profile unit in Lansing believed Shannon was killed by someone in her peer group. There was a chance there was more than one perpetrator, and she was likely killed by someone that she knew. It was also thought that the killer or killers kept memento. Bob said Shannon's class ring she always wore was missing and wasn't found with her body. Investigators sought out to determine who was the last person to see Shannon alive. In this case, there were eight kids who they thought knew something and needed to be questioned. All eight were talked to and investigators worked to develop a timeline. It was determined that Shannon would have had to leave the house after her father left for work around 10.30 p.m. After that, she met friends and acquaintances at the party spot in the woods. That night, Shannon wanted to go home and had earlier been riding around with two boys, Levi Pearson and Brandon Seavers. Friends said Shannon and other girls didn't like being alone with Brandon because he gave them the creeps. Tip said Brandon skipped town after Shannon went missing, which looked suspicious to police. Brandon was brought in and questioned. However, he said um, she wanted to go home and got in the car with someone else, and he didn't see Shannon after that. When investigators asked why Brandon left town, he said he went to Colorado to pick up a cousin and he was only gone a day or two. The kids at the party said Shannon got in a car with Paul and Matt Jones, brothers that grew up south of Nuego, and they were going back to Shannon's house to watch movies and drink beer. Paul and Matt said they dropped Shannon off at home between midnight and 2 a.m. and left because she said she was too tired and was going to go to bed. 
They gave a lot of detail of the house, including a porch light and TV being on and seeing Shannon's dog running around the house. Investigators traced the route Paul and Matt would have taken to Shannon's house and noticed they could see similar things like the dog running around and you could see the TV was on. And because of those details, investigators believed they were telling the truth. And the Jones brothers even took and passed a polygraph. With no leads and tips slowing down, police had nothing to go off of. After some time, the case went cold, but Bob worked to keep the case in the public's eye. Once you started mentioning them dropping her off and the dog and the TV, I know where I heard the story before. I watched that episode. Did you? <laughs> yeah, because all of a sudden, like, I, it flashed. And I'm like, okay, that's where I, I did watch that episode. Yeah. It was a good one. 22 years after Shannon's murder in August of 2011, a new administration in the city developed a cold case task force to try to solve Shannon's murder. One of the detectives said Shannon's case is why he became a police officer, so this was a determined group. The group did a victimology to learn more about who Shannon was. This brought them back to Shannon's class ring that she always wore on her right hand. It wasn't in her personal belongings at home, and it wasn't on her body. It also wasn't something police made known, and it was their goal to find the ring to identify the killer. The area where Shannon's body was found didn't have the ring. A detective had a metal detector and went over the area multiple times. The 15-year-old receptionist at the time of the murder, Amy Bonner, decided she was going to help solve it despite not being in law enforcement. One of the detectives started a Facebook page to try to have other avenues to get information. As soon as he set up the page, he got a message from Amy. Detectives were willing to take all of the unfiltered information she had, but said for her to not expect anything to come from it. People thought Amy had set up the page on Facebook, and police were happy to let people think that because they thought it might get more um, information if people they you know, thought they weren't sending messages directly to police. Weirdly enough, Amy received a message from a girl who said she thought some of her family members may have had a connection to Shannon's murder. Um, she claimed her family had held Shannon for a couple days in the basement of a house with a creek running through it by a lake and raped her. Later, she said they drove her into the woods and drove over her. So she's talking about Shannon. Amy went with... The girl to the house called Detective Pat Headland and had him come to the location. However, when police searched the house, they found the house didn't have and never had a basement. So this is some weird story the girl heard and was just like, yeah, it's probably true. Bob gave permission to exhume Shannon to recover letters that were in Shannon's casket from her funeral. They were hoping, I think, that maybe she had a confession letter from her killer in there with her, but... You know, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Shannon also had hair in her right hand. Just a weird detail to find that many years later. You think they would have found that in the beginning. But once the hair was tested, it was Shannon's. Like, it came back to Shannon. So really, for them, it seems like it was one disappointment and false lead after another for this case. Why in the world would she have her own hair in her hand? That's what's so weird. Yeah. It's like you would think that when they 
I don't know. Maybe it's because it's been three months and they, they wouldn't have done their usual cleaning or whatever you do when you're embalming someone. I guess in that case, once you're in the woods for three months, maybe they just kind of put you in. I don't know. Mm. Shannon's friend Julia had been interviewed after the murder. Detectives decided to speak with her again. The night of Shannon's murder, Julia had stopped by the house looking for Shannon multiple times over the night. She estimated every half hour from around 10.30, 11 p.m. And the last time she went was around 2.45 a.m. And if you remember from earlier, Paul and Matt Jones said they dropped Shannon off between midnight and 2 a.m. So she would have been home at one of those times when Julia stopped by. Police started looking into the Jones brothers. They spoke to Paul's ex-girlfriend, Lindsay, who said she saw something in Paul's ashtray in his vehicle. Uh, She was upset he asked her out when he had another girl's class ring in his car. And he supposedly said, let's face it, she's probably dead. How creepy. Um, And with that information, police were determined to find more. In Amy's search, with all the people she spoke to, she was told more than once to speak to Jenny Corrigan. Jenny was a good friend of Amy's and cried as she told her she knew how Shannon was killed. Amy called Pat Headland and told him she had found an eyewitness. Jenny said she was afraid to come forward because of retaliation. Jenny steered detectives toward Dean Robinson. Dean and Jenny described the incident from the night Shannon went missing. Jenny and Dean had been riding around when they came across a car that was parked. Dean spoke to the driver while Jenny stayed in the car. And she heard them mention the name Jones and that they were looking for a girl. Police think that Shannon had gotten away. And when Dean and Jenny left, police think at that time, Paul and Matt Jones found raped and killed Shannon. So they think they had her, brought her out to the woods. She somehow got away from them. And then they, you know, found her, which is just awful. I guess to make this even worse, um, Dean and Jenny later came back through and saw the brothers by the car with the girl on the ground. Dean ran out of the car to help. He tripped as he got close. He saw um, that the girl appeared to be Shannon. So while on the ground, Dean says that Paul ran up to him and kicked him in the face while Matt Jones walked up to him with a hammer. When Jenny made it known she was watching from Dean's car, Matt fled. And why they never went to police, we don't know. But that would be horrible for a teenage kid to witness and not know what to do. But, you know, a hint, uh, go to the police. Please. Right. Like, life is tough as a teenager. I know you have hormones and, and things, but, you know, when the girl goes missing after seeing that, I would I would hope you'd go to police. But I don't know if that was just the time in the 80s where you just, you didn't say things. Yeah. So it seems a lot of that older stuff, like, there was so much silence around a lot of that, like, old murders and old things that happened. A lot of people were afraid of retaliation. Yeah. A lot of people still are, but I mean, especially back then, because it's like if you get one of them and not the other, someone could be coming for you. 
a lot of witnesses went missing. Yeah, just think how terrible as a teenager to witness that and then not see anything. And then you just have this guilt for 22 years until somebody finally questions you about it. But the brothers had apparently bragged or made insinuations about the murder over the years. And Matthew had a history of being rough with women. And Paul has a criminal history, including multiple home invasions. The brothers were eventually officially arrested and their booking photos from June 24th, 2014 are in a Detroit Free Press article. Matthew Wayne Jones was convicted and sentenced to life in prison for homicide murder first degree premeditated on July 21st, 2015 and is currently a level two inmate at Kinross Correctional Facility. Paul Michael Jones was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced on July 21st, 2015 for 30 to 75 years. He may be released as early as January 3rd, 2039. And that pisses me off. Yeah, I hope neither of them are. And Paul is currently serving in the Thumb Correctional Facility in Lapeer as a level two inmate. My sources for that were the Cold Case Files episode and Detroit Free Press. <sighs> it's so frustrating. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least the one got life, but I don't know why both brothers wouldn't get life. Right. Unless they had different judges and one is more lenient. They were sentenced on the same day, so oh. I kind of figured they had the trial at the same time. I don't know. I don't know, maybe the the one that did the finishing move got life, while the one who just helped didn't. I don't know. And it was interesting, too, like, neither were charged with rape. It was, you know, first, second degree murder, and those were... Right. And I don't know if that's because, like, how do you prove they also did? There may have been evidence on the body, but maybe not enough to add that on i guess right so i have arthur warren Waite. arthur warren Waite was born on december 2 1887 in grand rapids michigan to warren w Waite and sarah jane hines so this is an older story <laughs> yeah usually i'm the one doing the old stuff <laughs> exactly i got an older one this time he claimed to be a physician Hmm. and (laughs) keyword claimed and took a course in dentistry at U of M and then studied at the university of Glasgow after that, even though he was listed in directories as Dr. Waite, he was never a registered physician, nor did he practice dentistry. (laughs) Wow. Right. But you know, doctor. (laughs) Yeah. Arthur married his wife, Clara Louise Peck, on September 9, 1915. I also read on Wikipedia that Waite was also having an affair with cabaret singer Margaret Horton. I never found any information on the affair, just that it happened, mm-hmm. which was a weird thing to add on there without any... Any context. Context. <laughs> like, affair. Okay, but... Got it. (laughs) Like, he was a shitty person in more than one way. (laughs) Right. 
Um, something I read on Murderpedia really stood out to me. And it reads, When the body of a possible murder victim is given a post-mortem to determine the cause of death, one of the first signs examiners look for is the presence of any known poisons. But what happens when the lethal ingredients that led to the victim's demise are not chemical poisons, but germs spread by diseases, some of which can prove fatal through natural misfortune rather than murderous intent? If a murderer could harness these germs and bacteria as an effective murder weapon, how could investigators possibly determine whether a victim had died from natural causes or purposefully been exposed to the deadly germs by a human assailant? That's a creepy thought. sets the scene. <laughs> yeah, it just kind of like sets the scene for this entire case, which is like completely insane, especially for the time period. It's, I would think it's more of like, a modern mindset. Yeah. Oh. But it's definitely a creepy thought. I was like, oh my God, I didn't have that fear that ne- before. Yeah. Now I do. New fear unlocked. Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Never date a doctor. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> or a fake doctor. Quote unquote doctor. Yeah. Arthur Warren Waite shared his luxury New York apartment on Riverside Drive with his wife and his in-laws, John and Hannah Peck. John Peck had amassed a sizable fortune due to his lifelong uh, career as a pharmacist. He was also known, from what I saw, as a millionaire from Grand Rapids. So, quite sizable fortune. And Arthur yearned to inherit as much of it as possible. Of course. Unfortunately for Waite, neither John nor Hannah was in poor health. So he concluded that it might be possible to speed up the process by having John ingest harmful bacteria, which would trigger a serious disease shadowed by an unyielding physical decline and ultimately death without anyone being held responsible. Oh, that sounds like a terrible way to go. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's it it gets worse. Luckily, I mean, I wish it was like neither of the deaths were good, but like John's just seems like overkill to an extreme where it's like yikes. Arthur decided to start with Hannah Peck. He carefully isolated a mixture of diphtheria and influenza germs and added them to her food. Oh, my gosh. Psychotic. Yeah. 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 After a series of doses, Hannah became ill and her health steadily declined until she finally passed away on January 30th of 1916, which, remember... Waite had just married his wife, Clara, only four months prior in September of 1915. So he he couldn't even wait a half a year to be like, these people got to go. I need their money. Yeah. Like, how long was he planning that for? (laughs) Right. He must have, like, during the dating process or something. Yeah. My God. After Hannah, Waite turned his attention to John. Although, this is kind of funny. It's not funny, but it is because it's like, I, 
It must have pissed him off so bad, and that's what's funny to me. Although his method did not work the way he, he had hoped it would. It seemed John Peck's immune system was in great shape, and he was immune to a whole range of bugs. Wow. Good for <laughs> Which him. Which is, like, impressive, but, like, you, you can't just... You gotta, you gotta be quicker than that. That's not gonna work. I'm just picturing um, him being angry every time. He's like, "All right, how about this strain?" And then it doesn't do anything. Doesn't do anything. At first, he tried dip uh, the diphtheria mix, but to no avail. Um, he then prescribed a nasal spray to aid in John's breathing, which he contaminated with tuberculosis. Oh my gosh! And that too failed to bring him to an end. Wow. <laughs> It was like, John's like, ah, try again, bitch. Even, even the TV doesn't work. Holy cow. Even the TV, like, he's like, I'm good here. An older man, just like, man, that pharmacist job must have really had you in with good stuff that kept your system pristine. Like, wow. I'm sure, yeah, the, I'm trying to remember, tuberculosis, like, infects your lungs, right? That's essentially, like, you cough up blood and. Yeah. I forget how tuberculosis works. Yeah, tuberculosis is like, especially back then, like, it was unheard of to survive that kind of. Yeah. Back then, if you had TB, you were, you were done for. I'm just picturing <laughs> Doc Holliday in the tombstone. Yeah, exactly. Wait even tried influenza and typhoid, but still John remained healthy. Jeez. John was like. <laughs> living it up oh my gosh but Waits and Patience finally got the best of him and he threw out all caution he had taken thus far determined to speed up the process of John's demise he added a dose of what he told the family servant was 11 medicine to tea and soup that was being served to John one evening this did the trick and John who had appeared to the family doctor the day before as healthy became very ill and John passed away on March 21st, 1916. The medicine that had been given to John Peck was nothing short of a lethal dose of arsenic. Wow. He was like, you know what? <laughs> yeah. So he went for right for a traditional poison then, I guess. Right. And unfortunately for him, there's a reliable test for the presence of arsenic at this time. He was, like, trying so hard yeah. to do it away nobody would notice, but he's impatient. Yeah. Completely healthy to the doctor the day before, and it wasn't even, like, a small dose of arsenic. It was... Lethal. Lethal dose. So it wasn't even... He slowly got sick after that healthy appointment, just gave himself away, which I guess good. <laughs> right. But that reliable test for the present of arsenic had been developed in the 1820s and after investigators received an anonymous letter before Mr. Peck could be buried they were able to complete the test because wow. they were like hold up let's read this letter oh he's not in the ground yet test him up does it say who sent it I want to know <laughs> no I know it just says an anonymous letter it doesn't even say what was in the letter nothing it just said they received an anonymous letter before the body was buried and the test came back 
arsenic. I wonder if it was the servant. That's what I'm thinking. Because he had explained to them that it was 11 medicine. And since he got sick so fast, I wonder if the servant was like, pause. Let me send this in. Which I imagine you would have to be good to your servant for them to care enough to say, hey, you should check. Yeah. Which makes me think, you know, the doc, like the pharmacist and his wife were probably really nice to her. Yeah. And he probably wasn't. Yep. I was thinking along those same lines. I mean, just (laughs) that's the thought. (laughs) The evidence was clear and the trial became more of like a formality than anything else at that point. Dr. Arthur Warren Waite, why they still called him doctor is beyond me. Yeah, not a doctor, (laughs) Arthur. (laughs) Not really a doctor, but he was convicted of John Peck's murder. And before his execution, he admitted to the methods he had used for doing away with Hannah Peck without raising any suspicion. So he just wanted to throw that out there like, ha ha ha, you're going to kill me? I did her in too and you never knew. Kind of like a... I'm going to brag about it. Right. Waite was also seemingly impatient with the arsenic as well. Because while speaking about John's murder, he stated, Then I gave him arsenic. I don't remember what day it was. I gave him a lot of it in his food. One night I was left to watch by his bedside while my wife got some rest. The old man was groaning with pain. I looked over the medicine bottles beside his bed and found a small vial of chloroform. I saturated a rag with some of this and went over to him and said, Father, here's some ether and ammonia, which will relieve your pain. I gave him a smell and then I gave him another dose. At last he fell asleep. I continued to put on more until he became unconscious. Then I got a pillow and placed it over Mr. Peck's face and held it there until he died. Wow. He just couldn't. He couldn't wait it out. Like you had definitely given him. A fatal dose. Just like, this isn't fast enough. He had been wait, I guess, trying, obviously, for so long. He was just, like, mad <laughs> after all these things that he had tried before. He's like, just fucking die already. Like, dude. Yeah. Get it together. Wow. wow. He really wanted him gone. He did. From what I've read, Clara Waite, Arthur's wife, was also poisoned. Oh. It doesn't say... It doesn't say anything more on this except that she became ill but ultimately recovered and she is said to have later married John J. Caulfield. Hopefully that marriage was better than... Yeah, they. I, it looks like she even outlived him and she was she passed away in the 60s. Oh, wow. So she had lived a long life after the fact... That was, like, intense. Imagine, a few months after marriage, not in a, not even a year, your husband's trying to kill you and your family. Like, what? That's just awful. Yeah, I had ended up finding these on Murderpedia and Wikipedia. But unfortunately, there wasn't really much outside of that that I could really find that had any more information. Yeah. Unless I just missed something. But, yeah, that was quite... For that time period, I wouldn't think anybody would be... If you're that smart to be able to come up with a thought process like that and to be able to isolate certain sicknesses 
why didn't you actually become a doctor? Yeah. <laughs> like, for real, for real. That would have meant work. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, well, maybe he wasn't smart, and that's why it wasn't working on the yeah. on the dad, because he wasn't doing it right, maybe? Maybe. Maybe he should have gone to doctor school and learned how to, <laughs> how to isolate correctly. I don't know. Like, I don't know. It, but it's just... That's the part, like, as as messed up as the whole story in it is, that part definitely gave me a good chuckle because I could just imagine how much that must have made him so angry. Yeah, just getting madder and, and madder. And giggle. Just like, why, are they, why isn't he dying? Like, like just yeah. getting madder and madder. And that makes me laugh because I'm like, that's what you get. Every time you see him, how are you feeling today? Uh, feeling good? Perfect condition. He sees the doctor. He's in perfect health. What? (laughs) Tuberculosis, typhoid, influenza, like diphtheria, everything. Cool as a clam. (laughs) What? Oh, Lord. Uh, Yeah, just picture him getting madder and madder. Oh, man. That's crazy. Let's talk about poisons and stuff. There was a, a good book. I don't remember who it was by. It's called The Poisoner's Handbook. And it just gave the history of poisons and how they were able to develop tests in investigations to check that someone had been poisoned. It's a really interesting book if you you know want that history. Yeah, but like even even with you know if it if they wouldn't have been able to find the arsenic, like if he had never used that and John had passed away from. One of the other things, like nobody would have ever known unless he told somebody about it. Like, because if you think about it, somebody back then coming down with tuberculosis, okay, he had TB. What's the point of looking into this further? Yeah. You know, people get TB all the time. Like, that's not unheard of. Tuberculosis could take a long time to kill someone too, because people were doing all those treatments back in the day where they'd like go to a mountain and live on yeah. the mountain or something, or go to a different climate to see if that helped. So it would have taken a while for that one, right? I guess that's why he would try to probably mix them with things like influenza, yeah, to get their systems so low, weakened, and so sick yeah, that the other one could jump in and finish them off. I don't know. But it's like, wow, I, that's worrisome. New fear. Yeah. New, new fear unlocked for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh, should we mention the plan that starts with the next episode? Yes. I don't know if you remember Midwest March Madness. So <laughs> each week in March, we're going to go outside of Michigan and talk about uh, other cases in the Midwest region, which I'm really excited about. Yes, it's going to be so much fun. Let's switch it up. <laughs> Do something new and exciting. <laughs> something outside of Michigan, but still in the good old Midwest. Yep. <laughs> It'll be a nice little change up. Ugh. But yeah. Anyway, <laughs> thank you everybody for listening to this episode. Stay safe out there and watch out for the crazies. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. 
The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomptech.filmmusic.io.